everyone. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Tabernacle Young Adults Podcast. We pray that this lesson would be a blessing to you. I'm going to teach tonight from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, continuing on with the series series that we've been on. Uh, I'm going to take an unscientific poll and ask how many of you, in the, in, the, in the fight between cats and dogs, how many of you are dog fans? Do we have any cat fans? Okay, so a couple of cat fans. I don't mind cats. I had an evil cat that attacked. It was, I've never had a, a, a watch dog, but I've had a watch cat, and I'm allergic to cats, so I probably shouldn't have had the cat anyway. And if you walked in the room when he didn't want you to walk in the room, all 20 pounds of him would attack, and you'd... <laughs> You'd end up bleeding down your leg, and it was just, it was not fun. I decided after that I was allergic to cats, and I never wanted another cat. But I preached about dogs already this month, so I figured I'd switch to cats and give, give the cat lovers a little bit of a, of, a, uh, of a nod. So I want to talk to you tonight about the subject, a cat's tail. I don't care how you spell tail. I know it's a homonym. You can go T-A-I-L or T-A-L-E. It doesn't really matter. You'll see the point here in a moment. So it was a warm summer's afternoon. The sun was shining through the window of the little old lady's home um, because we always know, we know the, the, uh, the cliche about old ladies and their cats. So we're just going to make it an old lady. And she's sitting in her rocking chair, slowly rocking back and forth. Maybe she's crocheting. Maybe she's knitting. I'm not exactly sure. And her orange cat is over on the couch, curled up in a sweet slumber. Every once in a while as she's crocheting, the cat will lift its head and, and maybe give an inaudible yawn and then switch positions and, and go to sleep again. He's dreaming of catching mice. He's dreaming of playing with string. He's, he's, he's dreaming maybe of a fresh caught fish that tastes so very scrumptious. When all of a sudden, a sound disturbs his slumber. He hears a knock at the door. And he's a little frustrated. So he, he, he saunters over to the door as cats do, maybe back arched. Um, his, his fur may be a little prickling on end. You ever see a cat's back ripple when they get a little upset? So maybe his back is rippling as he saunters over to the door and, and just stands there waiting for the old lady to make it to the door. She, she slowly makes her way over, um, a little slower than the cat would have liked. God wanted to give us a true sound of a knock on, a, on the door just for the sermon illustration, illustrative purposes going on here tonight. So, uh, she slowly works the lock, maybe, maybe fumbles a little bit in, in turning the lock, opens the door, and in comes a flood of people. And this flood of people all have their own chairs, and now you have a whole society of old ladies in their rocking chairs, chattering away, socializing, maybe gossiping a little bit as they're working on their different handicrafts and crocheting and knitting, and, and maybe some of them are, 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 are working on a, um, all I can think of is Afghan. Um, what is the other thing that you sew? Quilt. quilt, thank you. Maybe some of them are working on a quilt. I was stuck on Afghans. My grandma crochets, and so I've, I've never had somebody make me a quilt other than when I was an infant, but I've had lots of crocheted blankets, so Afghan was the way I went. So they all come in, and they're, they're sitting in there crocheting. He's frustrated with the whole, whole ordeal because now things are loud. Now things are chaotic, and the creaking of the chairs is unnerving. And it's not rhythmic. They can't even, they can't even rock in rhythm. It's every two seconds. And so he decides he's going to try to go back over to a safe haven, his place of safety. And he's going to try one more time to curl up on that couch. 
And so he gets down close to the floor, getting ready to sprint across the room and make a mad dash. And just as he gets down, ready to make his mad dash, he realizes something has caught his tail. And he hears the crunch as that rail of that rocking chair, that rocker comes down on his tail. He lets out a yell and as he tries to make it across the room, he's, he's, he's shooting left and right, dashing to and fro, trying to avoid all of these rocking chairs, trying to avoid all of these rockers. And my friends, that's where we get the idiom, as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rockers. Or at least that's what my, where my mind took me last night when I was working on this message. I have no clue where it came from. I don't know where the idiom came from. I tried to look it up, so I figured I'd give you a good story and, and would go with it. But, you know, we live in a society that is uh, anxious, that is nervous, that is uptight. We live in a society that everything comes at the speed of light. Technology comes at the speed of light. I've seen multiple studies. I have some facts and figures here, and I'm not going to bore you with a ton. But um, right now in the U.S., the U.S. has the highest percentage of children living in single-parent households with between 23 to 31, 32 percent, depending on what stat you look at, versus about 3 to 7 percent for the rest of the world. CNN puts the number of children living in a single-parent household at one-third. Multiple studies have talked about, have, have, have investigated the effects of social media on both young people, young adults, and adults and found that it, it, it causes a, a great increase in anxiety and depression and loneliness and despair and all of those things that are taxing your society. Why? Because you have FOMO. Why? Because you don't feel like you're good enough. Why? Because somebody else is out doing something, getting something that you don't have, going somewhere that you don't have the ability to go, doing something that you don't have the ability to do in the moment. And so we constantly find ourselves in this, this, this push and pull trying to measure up in society. We live in a society that has perpetuated this concept of everything having to be a question mark to the extent that young people, adults, and children all wrestle with all decisions, with trying to determine what is truth, which way to go, trying to determine how to make the most simple of decisions because we have to make sure we're politically correct, we have to make sure we don't offend anyone, we have to make sure that tolerance means acceptance, which, by the way, that's a misnomer. That's false. But we, we wrestle with all of these things, and we, we live in a society where rest is, is very difficult to find sometimes. It's difficult to find a time to pause and just, just stop and smell the roses, so to speak, to, to use another idiom there, just to stop and breathe in fresh air and feel like everything's going to be okay. Because the minute you try to stop, the minute you try to pause, something else hits. And the minute you try to stop and you try to pause, this thing goes off again. The minute you try to stop and pause, somebody is wanting your attention. Somebody else wants you to go out. Somebody else needs your assistance. Somebody else needs your help, and there's, there's no pause. And so we live in a society that has bred an entire generation. And when I say generation, I'm not just talking about your age, but I'm talking about the entire populace that has become so nervous and so anxious that they're much like that long-tailed cat in a room full of rockers, darting to and fro, never finding a place of rest, not figuring out where their safe haven is, and struggling to figure out how to get away from the anxiety, <coughs> the worry, the concern. And those things tear you apart. Those things weigh you down. Those things keep you up at night and keep you from being what God would desire for you to be. But you see, Scripture gives us a different approach. And so going into chapter 6 of Matthew, we're going to start again with verse 25. It says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, 
what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? This word thought is an old English word. I don't think it fully conveys the Greek meaning here because when we think of thought, we mean we think that perhaps Christ is saying here that we should not consider, we shouldn't concern ourselves in a very literal way with what we are going to eat and what we're going to drink. In other words, lay as fair. Just lay back and be apathetic to life, and life will deliver all the goods to you. Now, we have some in society that believe that. We have some that think that they're entitled to everything. We have some young people that grow up that think that they're entitled. But that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what we're dealing with. What we're dealing with here is a Greek word that is used 19 times in Scripture in the verb form and six times in this chapter right here between verses 25 and 34. And what the word actually means is anxiousness, worry, concern of a deep nature. And you see, there's something interesting about anxiety or about uh, this particular word. The other times that it comes up in Scripture, and I'm not going to read all of them, but I do want to highlight a couple. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Jesus talked to Martha, and he said, thou art careful and troubled about many things. That doesn't mean she's too cautious. She's too hesitant. It means she's too anxious. She's too worried. She's a, what uh, your grandma might call a worrywart. Anybody ever heard that phrase? Again, I have no clue where that came from. I would assume at some point somebody thought that worrying produced warts, if I had to guess. Um, <laughs> And it would probably be a decent guess because I have looked up a lot of idioms and, and many of them do boil down to something that simple. But um, when we're worried, when we're anxious, Scripture gives us a, a, a solution. And everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Because you see, that type of worry that is that type of concern that keeps you up in the middle of the night, that type of anxiety that, that weighs down on you, with the pressures of life, it divides and it pulls and it, it divides you and pulls you in different directions, distracting you from the goal, from what God has called you to be, from the fulfillment, from the transformation that Christ would desire for you, from becoming all that you can be in him. It diminishes your effectiveness both in the kingdom and in daily life. It causes you to become so overwhelmed that you cease to function as God intended or cease to function effectively. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because anxiety and worry and concern is something that everybody has wrestled with. There, are, if, I, if I were to ask, and again, I'm not, when it came time for a final exam week at college, I guarantee you many of you were up in the middle of the night, up late at night, your mind flying at the speed of light, worried and concerned and anxious uh, because of uh, the desire to meet certain expectations. That's just a natural part of life. But there is also a, 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 there's seasonal times where stressors will come and you have to deal with those things. You have to consistently give them to God. But there's also times that we wrestle with things that we don't need to wrestle with, where things keep us anxious and keep us up at night. And by the way, the noun form of that same word is used in 1 Peter when it says, cast all your cares, cast all your anxieties, cast all your concerns, cast all your worries on him. Why? Because he careth for you. So what we're talking about here is not being apathetic and just going, okay, if I don't do anything, the food's going to come to me on a silver platter. But what it's saying is do not concern yourself specifically with the things of this life because you have a higher call as a Christian. 
You have a higher call as a man or a woman of God than simply to be concerned with that which would provide physical sustenance. And this particular verse where it says, take no thought for your life, the first usage of the, the word life there is a word that also refers to soul. What you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, which is soma, the physical body, what you shall put on, is not the life more than meat and the body than, more than raiment. Now, what exactly does that mean? That means simply this. We have a creator that has taught the heart to beat without our intervention. I don't have to wake up every second or two at night to remember to breathe. God has orchestrated that. We don't have to tell our bodies to grow when we're children. One day you wake up and your shoes just don't fit. Or your shirt just doesn't fit right. Right? And mom or dad had to take you out to, to wear something else. So what is he saying here? If, if, if God is able to provide for the body, for the emotional, for the spiritual growth, for the physical growth of the human body, then he's able to care for the simple things of life. What we eat, what we drink. What did David say? He said in the Psalms, he said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor a seed begging bread. Now, again, that doesn't mean we sit back and expect a free ticket from God. We still have to work the work, and we still have to do the things. We still have to live the life, and we still have to adult. But at the end of the day, we can trust in our God that he is going to be faithful, and he is going to preserve us. He says, therefore, I say unto you, uh, I'm sorry, behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Now, I want to pause here for a second and say, when you're overwhelmed, overcome with anxiety and the worries of this life, the cares of this life, wondering what tomorrow is going to bring, and I understand where you're at, I've been there as a young person. I've been there as a young adult, wondering what was going to be the next chapter of life, not knowing what the future was going to hold, what doors were going to open, or what God was going to call me to do. And that can be a scary place to sit, and those anxieties and those worries can keep you up in the middle of the night wondering what God has in store and wondering if he's going to be faithful and wondering what you have to do and are you missing a door, are you missing an exit, what are you supposed to do? And when you get so weighted down with those things, it blunts everything. It makes the joy dimmer. It makes the sun shine a little less bright. It makes the vibrancy of the flowers perhaps a little, a, a little less awe-inspiring. It makes the flight of the bird a little less intriguing. Not something that you want to investigate. Why? Because when you get so bogged down with the things of, the life, of this life, you cease to be able to see God's glory. And when you cease to be able to see his glory, you're also going to struggle with the ability to, to hear his voice. And so what is Christ doing here? He's, he's, he's first of all saying, I recognize that you're worried about what tomorrow's going to hold. I recognize that you're concerned about how you're going to get your food, how you're going to get your water, how you're going to get your raiment, but open your eyes and look at my creation. You know, the interesting thing is I've had multiple times in my life where I've been so overcome by the mad dash that is life, that is ministry, that is just daily living, that I've, I've struggled to cease where God is in the mix. Everything's loud. Everything's drawing my attention. I feel like a uh, ADHD little five-year-old going down the street and, and going, squirrel, bird, house, like not knowing where to look, not knowing where to go, not knowing where to do, and, and completely unfocused, unable to know what God's doing, unable to know what, what I'm meant to be or where I'm meant to go. And I know you felt that as well. And, and there have been times that I've just stepped out and I've gone out and sat down beside a little, a little brook and listened to the babbling water, maybe picked up my Bible, or spent some time, you know, walking through the woods and talking to God. Not because I, I'm a tree hugger, 
Not because I think that God dwells in the trees and the flowers. You don't have to worry about that. But because there's something about being in touch with the reality that God, the creator of the universe, the one who made all that is in existence, who cast the stars into space, set the planets in orbit, allowed for, allowed for breath to enter the lungs of each and every animal, has created you and me. And not only did he create us, but he's not a creator who's far off. But he's a creator who cares about his creation, who's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, who loves us with an everlasting love, and who cares about not just whether or not we make it to heaven, but cares about our, our physical protection, cares about our spiritual protection, cares about our emotional well-being, and cares about our health. And when you look at that little butterfly and its, it's wings raised in flight, I, I remember a specific time in my life, and I'm not meaning this like a super spiritual God moment, but I remember a specific time in my life where... I was overwhelmed and I was like, God, I don't know that you can put the pieces back together. I don't know that I have enough strength to keep fighting. I don't know that I have enough strength to make it another step. And I'm putting my hand in yours and I'm trying to trust you. But, oh, man, it's so hard. Can you not just give me a roadmap? Can you not just help me to understand? My, my wings feel broken, so to speak, and I don't know how I'm going to fly again. And I remember walking out and getting ready to walk to work and watching that little butterfly fly by. And God just spoke it so deeply into my heart that, that that wing that seemed so fragile, that it could break at this slightest touch, is able to bear that little insect up into flight on the winds that God has created. And if God can sustain something that is so delicate, that is so easily broken, then he can certainly sustain my heart. And that's what it boils down to. It means that we have to have a change of perspective and perception. So what is Christ saying here? He's saying, I know you're overwhelmed. I know you don't know where your next meal is coming from. I know you don't understand what I'm doing right now in your life. But take a look. Even the fowls of the air. doesn't just say they stay in their nest all day. But the fowls of the air, they don't sow. They don't plant the seeds in the ground. They don't reap the harvest nor gather in barns. And, the, and, and collect the harvest to sustain them through the winter. But yet God in his sovereignty has created the ability for these birds to live, to feed, to have exactly what they need to make it through, not just the spring, not just the summer, but also a winter season. Furthermore, he says, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? Now, there is back and forth upon, uh, about this specific verse theologically. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, tell you exactly where I land. Uh, the, the Greek word that is used here can refer to physical growth. So you can't, by desiring, uh, make yourself taller or shorter. Um, the word can also refer to uh, stature in the sense of one's life. So you can't add days to your life beyond that which is designated to you by God. Regardless of how you slice it, the point is worry is not going to get you anywhere. You can't change the very nature of things by worrying, by staying up all night, by wrestling in anxiety, wrestling with worry, wrestling with concern. He says, and why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So again, like I said, when you're overwhelmed, the, the, the flowers lose their vibrancy. You can't derive joy from the things that caused, that allowed you to have joy before. Those things that would refuel you maybe don't refuel you in the same way. Why? Because anxiety is knocking at your door. 
And when you lay down and try to sleep at night, anxiety is keeping you awake. You're sleeping for an hour or two and then waking up because that anxiety is, is, is plaguing your heart and plaguing your spirit. And it's drawing you not just away from what you could be, but it's drawing you away from relationship with God. Because when we allow anxiety to attach itself to us in, to that extent, and please don't misunderstand me, I understand the nature of mental health. I understand that sometimes people need counseling, and that can be a wonderful thing and a godly thing. I'm talking about the natural inclination of the human spirit to wrestle in the valley of indecision and to wrestle with nervousness, anxiety, and stress. Okay, So I'm not, I'm not saying everything is solved with just a simple prayer. I understand that, so I do want to say that as a caveat. But when we allow these things to attach ourselves to us and we do not cast all our cares on him, we, in essence, are allowing that anxiety, that worry, to become our God. And that's unhealthy. That means when we talk about these things that are dividing us, that are pulling us in opposite directions, it's pulling us away from the very presence of the one who is the only one who is able to sustain us, who is able to heal us, who is able to, to apply the bomb that is needed when we're wrestling with the anxiety, when we're wrestling with the pain, the only one that is able to allow the light to come back um, into our sky that is able to allow the vibrancy to return to the flowers and able to allow us to, again, look at all, in awe at God's creation and recognize that the Creator can sustain our hearts. So when he points us to uh, the raiment of, of the flowers, the lilies, and how they grow, they don't labor at all. And I find it interesting that in both these verses where it says, Behold the flowers, and when it says, Consider the lilies, he uses an imperative, which is a command. So he's saying, get your eyes off of the things of this world. Get your eyes off of the things that are distracting you. Get your eyes off where your friend is in life when maybe you're not there. Maybe you seek to be married at this point, and you're not married. Maybe you seek to already be finished with your degree, and you're not. Maybe you seek to already be purchasing a house, and your friend is purchasing a house. He's saying, get your eyes off all of these things. Sometimes that requires us turning this off. Sometimes that requires uh, putting a time that's allowable for our social media. Sometimes that means we use do not disturb because we, we can't answer another call right now. We can't be there for somebody else in that moment because we've got to spend some time in the presence of God and realign who we are and what we are because we've got to be healthy in order to be a good friend to others. We've got to be healthy in order to, to pour into others. We've got to be healthy in order to be what God desires for us to be. And by the way, God has called each and every one of you to ministry whether it's pulpit ministry, whether it's music ministry, or whether it's the ministry of just simply loving people, the ministry of prayer, the ministry of Bible studies, the ministry of witness, those are all ministries that he's called you to, and regardless of what he's called you to, you're not going to be able to be effective if you have not spent time in his presence and allowed him to take his, your cares upon him. And I want to be cautious here in saying, sometimes that means you have to return again and again and again. Sometimes we get this philosophy, okay, God is saying, get your eyes off all the things of this life. Consider the lilies. Look at the birds. We go and do that, and we say, God, I give you this, and we expect everything to change instantaneously. But, you know, sometimes I remember talking to someone one day, and they were talking about wrestling with doubt, and they said, oh, I'm praying against that doubt. And I said, mm, hold up right there. Make sure you know what you're doing. Because sometimes God wants you to pray against doubt, and against the spirit of doubt in your life, and sometimes God wants you to walk through it because there's something to be learned in the process. So don't try to push something away if God is taking you through that process. And sometimes when we're wrestling with the cares of this world, sometimes there's layers to these things. And sometimes we cast one care, and the next day we have something else weighing on us. So what do we do? We don't throw in the towel discouraged, but we go out and look at God's creation again. 
we look out and, and realign ourselves with the Creator, we pick up this beautiful book and find consolation on its pages. You know, the Bible talks about David encouraging himself in the Lord, and the fact of the matter is there may be times where you're wrestling with anxiety, where you're wrestling with worry, where you're wrestling with concern, and you, you don't know where God is in the mix, and maybe, maybe you don't feel his presence. But can I tell you, something powerful happens when you start flipping through this word, and you say, God, I don't know where you're at right now, but you, I know you're a God that spoke to Samuel. I know you're a God who parted a Red Sea. I know you're a God who was David's rod and his staff that helped lead him through that valley of the shadow of death. And so, God, I'm going to trust that you can do the same for me. I don't know where you're at. I'm wrestling. I'm hurting. I'm in pain. I have cares. I have concerns. I have worries. I have anxieties. I don't know how things are going to turn out. But, God, I'm looking to you. And I'm going to continue putting my hand in yours because I know you are that creator that created everything. I know you're the sustainer of all things. I know you're both the beginning and the end. And you know what? I'm going to face on this life's journey. So my only hope is in you. So even if that, that care, the cares don't dissipate overnight, it may mean that you're going to have to walk through some things. But I promise you in the walking through, in the trial, in the wrestling, in the endurance, you're going to find strength in your God. You're going to finally recognize in a new and a fresh way who God truly is. I oftentimes talk about it, and I probably say it more than I should, but, but the fact of the matter is, is that sometimes God is God of the storm. He steps in and he says, peace be still. You say, I'm going to cast all my cares on you because I don't want to have these worries and I don't want to have these concerns. And he steps in and he says, peace be still, and suddenly everything just becomes wonderful. Sun starts shining again. Family situations get sorted out. You get the alert on your app for school that you got straight A's and everything is glorious again. But you know, so that's not always how it works because sometimes God is God of the storm and he shows that he has power over the wind and the waves and sometimes he's God in the storm. And when he's God in the storm, that means we keep having to return back to him when we have those fears and those anxieties and those worries and we have to keep casting our cares on him because he will sustain us through the storm. And the beautiful thing about being sustained through the storm is when you are sustained through a storm, A, you get to see a firsthand account of what God is able to do. But more importantly, perhaps, I would argue, is the fact that the way he oftentimes sustains us in the storm is by drawing us closer to him, closer to his presence. So as opposed to him just stepping in and saying, peace be still and everything being instantaneous, he holds us close as a loving father with compassion and concern and pity. He calms the beating of our heart, even though the waves are still rising, the wind is still blowing, the thunder is still banging and booming, and the lightning is still striking. Sometimes, somewhere in the midst of the storm, we find a place of refuge and a place of safety. It doesn't mean we're not going to wrestle with those same things a couple of days later or the next day, but each time we find ourselves in, a, in his presence, we'll find a, a safe place, a safe haven, a place where we can feel his presence, a place where we can feel his love and we can feel his arms surround us. When I was working on putting some notes together for this, which I have barely used at this point, so I guess I spent some time for nothing, but that's okay. I still love y'all. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just joking. I had something running through my mind, and I have some mentors in my life. And I remember Sister French, a pastor's wife in Georgia, posting at one point. She said, the precious word of God speaks to every fear that we may have. When we intentionally keep our minds focused on how big our God is, our struggles are viewed through the lenses of hope. The promise that he will be with us always, that his mercies are new every day. And there's beauty in that because when we keep our minds focused on God, we can suddenly see that there is hope because he's a God of hope. 
we can see that there is the potential for victory because he is the God of victory. When we keep our eyes stayed on him, the struggle ceases to be as difficult and as acute as it once was. It's why the, the old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full on his wondrous face. And what does it say? The things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we look at him and focus our attention on him, even if it's just for a momentary stop along life's journey, even if it's just for those 10, 15, 20 minutes that you can carve out of your day when you feel completely overwhelmed, I promise you if you spend that time looking at his face, looking at his presence, looking at his word, your perspective and your perception will begin to shift. And that's what I'm talking about when I'm, I'm talking about him saying, look at the birds, consider the lilies. He's not just saying take a walk in the woods, but he's saying, Think about who created them. Think of who I am and what I'm able to do for you. And it's going to cause a switch in perspective. It's going to cause a switch in perception. So the lilies, they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So even the, one of the most beautiful of human beings, if you will, if you want to call a, a, a man from Scripture glorious in terms of the way that he was clothed and the way that he was dressed, didn't measure up to God's creation. And in essence, nothing that man creates can ever measure up to the beauty of the art that God creates. His canvas is beautiful. His, his paintbrush goes just perfectly across the canvas to create a masterpiece. And he can, by the way, create a masterpiece out of our mess. Out of the broken pieces, he can create a mosaic of stained glass that is absolutely glorious. Oftentimes in the most beautiful of artwork, you know, I, I find it interesting. I wasn't planning on telling this story, but oh well. Any, anybody like art? Okay, some of you are, don't really know. And I get it, because you're probably wondering what kind of art I'm talking about. I love Renaissance art. I love, I love a lot of different art, to be honest with you, but I like classical art much better than modern art. As a young person, I had a cousin who was very artistic, and I was trying to get her interested in classical art, and we ended up going to a modern art museum. And you know, it was fascinating. They had these quote-unquote masterpieces of, uh, <laughs> that, were, that were sculptures of, of people doing things in real life. They had a um, sculpture of a woman who was probably about 500 pounds sitting and eating ice cream as it was dripping down and dripping off the edge of the table. It looked very realistic. So we were looking at this and kind of like, okay, this is weird. This isn't really art. And then we looked over and we saw this young lady that they had sculpted laying on the couch over the side. And so we're like, wow, that's really realistic. Like, I thought the lady over here eating her ice cream was realistic, but this, this is really realistic. And you could get close, so we got close, and we're like, man, this is, you, you know where this is going. This looks so real. Right as she woke up. She was just a college student that had crashed on the couch. But, but you know, the, the interesting thing is I've been to modern art museums. I've been to classical art museums. And I would label classical art on a, on a level, maybe some of you would disagree, but on a level um, much higher than, than much modern, many modern art exhibitions. A square on the wall doesn't quite strike my fancy. There are some modern artists I like, but, but many of them I don't. But you walk into a modern art gallery, and oftentimes there's lights, there's sounds. I remember walking into one thing at the Indianapolis Art Museum at one point at the IMA, and it was just a wall of, of monitors, and it was just static, and lights on these monitors, and it was just insane. There's like 20 monitors, and they're all like static, just trying to drive somebody crazy. It was basically like a torture chamber. And for all intents and purposes, but you know what I find fascinating is when you have a really beautiful piece of art that the master has spent a lot of time on, you walk into the space where it's contained and what you actually see is, is the piece on the wall and there's nothing around it. There, there may be a piece three or four 
three or four feet over and you see the lights are trained on it just perfectly. They've, they've gone in with the experts to make sure that the angle is just perfect to, for photography and that the angle is just perfect to see the, the, the master's work as he's or she is, has guided the, the, the paintbrush across the canvas. And you know, I think sometimes our, our life is much like that. In the craziness and the insanity and the times when everything is high, when everything is loud, when everything is noisy, when everything is chaotic and we're just having fun with it, we lack the ability to see the masterpiece that God is creating and that he can create. But sometimes when you walk in to that art museum and you have that stark wall that's a stark color and you have the lights trained just right and it can seem kind of uh, clinical, feel a little bit like a hospital setting to some extent, but what is so incredible about that is you can see the brush stroke of the master. And sometimes when everything becomes difficult in life, sometimes when the trials and the tribulations come, in the quietness, in the solitude that we find in the presence of God, we can begin to see exactly what he's doing. And sometimes it doesn't come in the moment. Sometimes it takes a little time. I know I've been through situations where it's like, I can't see where God is anywhere in the mix. I don't understand what he's doing. But fast forward, and when I get through to the other side, I can suddenly see his fingerprint on every step of the process. And that's what God is able to do. He's able to create a masterpiece, something that no simple man could create, something that a uh, no one could, could manufacture. <laughs> Sorry, folks. I am, y'all that have me in class at IBC know I'm clumsy. It's a good thing I don't have coffee because it already would have been spilled. And I have never spilled on my Bible. Thank you, Jesus. Knock on wood. <laughs> oh, wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the, into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? So what is he saying there? The grass is going to wither. The flower is going to fade. When you go out and mow the lawn, you don't put special uh, fencing around each wildflower to preserve it. You just mow over the wildflowers. Back then, they would be thrown in the oven and used for fuel. And if God gave such delicate care to a lily that has no eternal value, then how much more care is he going to give to you that has eternal value, that is made not for this world, but made for heaven? Not made for this life, but made for life eternal. Not made just to, just to live and die and be cast into a fire, but, but made to, to dwell in the very presence of God, to be in relationship with him in the present, and to be in his presence in the future when we walk on streets of gold. How much more care? So what is he saying? Look around you and recognize that all of nature testifies to the creator. And in the, testi in the way that it testifies to the creator, it testifies to his love and his compassion for you. Therefore, take no thought, verse 31, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. So when all society is running mad and anxious with getting the next thing, with doing the next thing, with trying the next thing, the next gimmick, the next plan, the next thing that's going to satisfy that yearning and that longing in their soul, take a deep breath and recognize you're not meant to be consumed with the desires for the material things this life. That doesn't mean it's unhealthy to desire to own a home. It doesn't mean it's unhealthy to desire to, to purchase things or to have a specific type of life. But that can't be the driving force of your life. That cannot be the thing that consumes you because that's how the Gentiles live. That's how the pagans live. That's how society lives. And we're called with a higher calling. Take this whole world, but give me Jesus. At the end of the day, the things of this life are going to fade away. The money is going to rust and the garments are going to, to be eaten up by moths. But at the end of the day, his word is going to be forever sustained because it's forever settled in heaven. And our souls are eternal, so 
We are not meant to be consumed by the things of this life. We have to look to life eternal and recognize that we're not made for today. We're made for the future. And because of this, we have to not only cast all our cares on him, but we have to trust him, not just with our present, but with our past and our future as well. We have to trust that he's going to help us to know how to put one foot in front of the other. He's going to open the right doors. He's going to set us on the right path. If we start to get off path from him, he's going to bring us back with correction and conviction because he is a loving father. So we have to trust him in all things because he has knowledge of the things that we have need of. And God can do it. Lord God, have mercy. I, I know, Sister Hussey, you're going to know what I'm talking about here. Um, but I remember a time in my life where I was struggling tremendously under the weight of family situations and concerns, and it was, it was literally eating me alive. And I was trying to talk to a friend about this situation, and they asked whether I had, had talked to mentors in my life in a while, and I, no, I haven't. And I knew I dropped the ball relationally. I knew that I wasn't there for them when I should have been there for them, when they were going through struggles and trials and tests. And my friend was like, you know, you should reach out. And I was like, yeah, I should. <laughs> Not going to. That was my thinking because all of the uh, should-haves and would-haves and could-haves had become an avalanche and had become an, an unsurpassable mountain. But I was in a bad place. I wasn't backslidden, but I was broken. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I was wrestling with anxiety over things that I couldn't control, people that had walked away from God and walked away from family, and I could do absolutely nothing to prevent it, nothing to help it. And can I tell you that in that moment, my father knew what I had need of? And literally 30 seconds from my friend saying, you need to call them, guess what happened? My phone lit up after a year and a half, two years of not talking with those individuals. And within a week, I'd had two conversations that had begun to, to allow the mending process to take place. Why? Because my father knew what things I had need of. And I didn't stop in the midst of the struggle and throw in the towel and just say, well, I just have to, to wrestle with this on my own. But I said, God, I don't get it, and I'm hurting, and my heart is, is broken, and I don't know how I'm going to make it through, but I'm going to place it in your hands. And if you can't fix the situation, then fix my heart. If you can't help the situation because you allow for free will, then, then help my heart. Repair my heart. Mend my heart. Bring me healing because I can't carry this alone. And God knew that I, in that moment I didn't just need a prayer, but I needed to see the love of God exemplified through people. I needed to see the grace and mercy of God exemplified through people so that I could truly understand who my God was, so my father knew what things I had need of. I know I just switched from physical to spiritual, but the implications are there for both physical, spiritual, and emotional. He knows precisely what we need because he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, and when we don't know what's wrong, and when we don't know how to fix it, our God knows. And he loves us enough to help us through the process and to help us fix it. He says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That doesn't mean if you seek God first that that means that you're going to have a mansion in this life. But what that does mean is that if you seek him first and foremost, when you wake up in the morning, you say, God, what is it you desire of me? When you're wrestling with anxiety, you go to, to him and you say, I'm going to cast my cares on you because I'm going to trust that you care for me. When you walk in covenant with him and seek the things that are a requirement of the kingdom and seek to live in accordance with him, seek to be guided by the spirit, then guess what? God is going to step into that process and he's going to make sure that everything else is aligned in your life exactly as it should be aligned in order for you to be who he's called you to be, in order for you to, to live a life up to your full potential. We don't know what our full potential is. God does. 
You know, what did Brother Mooney always say? He said, if you try to plan your life, you're going to underplan it. And the fact of the matter is that that truly remains the truth. If, if I had planned my life, I would have definitely not planned on the path that I went on. But God knew exactly the path that would lead me to his calling and what he desired for my life. And the same is true of each and every one of you in this place. So when you seek him, put him first. That means you're not going to live fractured. You're not going to live divided. You're, not, you're going to be able to live out in the secular world what you believe spiritually. That means you're not going to be fractured body, mind, soul, and spirit. What did, what did the psalmist say? He said, God, unite my heart in truth. What does that mean? Let me not be divided. Let my desires, let my wills not be divided. Paul talked about his pre-conversion in Romans chapter 7, and he said, look, I knew what I wanted to do, and I couldn't do it. And then what I didn't want to do, I ended up doing. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to be spiritual. When I wanted to be spiritual, I ended up being carnal. And when I, I knew I shouldn't be carnal, it just kept happening. That's the, the fight that humanity is in. But you and I don't have to have that fight. Paul didn't have to have that fight post-conversion. That's why he said, O wretched man that I am, who shall save me from this body of death? And he starts the next chapter by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That's where you and I are living. So when we're living this life with Christ, we don't have to be fractured where we're wrestling between carnality and spirituality every day with every breath. We can, we can do with our body exactly what we desire to do in the spirit because our spirit and our body, our mind, our emotions, everything is in submission to God. When we seek his kingdom first, everything else is going to work out. It may not work out exactly like you had planned it, but it's going to work out in perfection because God does all things well. And it's going to work out exactly as he desires for it to work out because he's going to bring you in alignment with your call your giftings, and what he desires of you in this life so that you can be the very best version, which I hate to say it because it sounds like a self-help mantra, but the very best version of you that you could possibly be. We talk about finding ourselves. You will not find yourself until you find who you are in God and have the confidence and boldness to walk in his calling as a son, as a daughter of the King of Kings. And I'm hastening to a close. He finishes up there with kind of an addendum saying, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So what's he saying there? Don't worry about what tomorrow is going to bring. Don't borrow trouble. Just keep walking. The struggles of this life are going to come, and borrowing trouble isn't going to make them any easier to, to wrestle through. But what will make them simpler is bringing them to the foot of the cross, bringing them to God. I want to give you one other little illustration before I close. Um, and that's simply this. The book of 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 19, talks about the prophet Elijah coming down from his victory at Mount Carmel. Jezebel is out to kill him, has, is threatening his life, wanting his head, and he begins wrestling in the, in the valley of depression. We find him under a juniper tree, praying and saying, God, just, just take, take my life now. Let me close my eyes and sleep and never wake up again. It's not a good place to be. And I know I've oftentimes wondered what exactly produced that. I have a lot of theories. I have a lot of thoughts. I don't think there's anybody who's read it that doesn't um, have a lot of theories and a lot of thoughts. But, but what is so powerful about that, in my, in my eyes, is those are some really strong words that he said. God, just, just let me pass. I can't do it anymore. I can't keep running. I can't keep fighting. I'm done. You and I would sometimes see that as throwing in the towel. But you know what? God didn't chastise him. Watch what God did. He came down, 
He gave him a cake. He gave him some water. And he said, sleep. Your father knows what you need. It doesn't matter what you're going through. There's nothing too big for God. There's no words that you're going to say that are going to offend him. You can say, I don't want to wake up tomorrow, and God knows exactly what you need to sustain you even when you don't. There's nothing too big for your God. So when you come to him, you can be confident that he is faithful and he is true, and he's going to deliver exactly what is needed in that moment. If I had been God, I might have tried to chastise the prophet. I might have tried to correct his thinking. I might have tried to give him reason to live. But at the end of the day, that's not what he needed. He needed food. He needed water. He needed sleep. Anybody ever been there? Maybe not to that extent, but realize like everything's all wrong, and you're like, oh, wait, I didn't eat all day? Um, <laughs> happened a few times. <laughs> um, but the truth of the matter is he knows what you need. So no matter what, let's go ahead and stand. No matter what you came in here tonight with, no matter what anxiety, no matter what worry is plaguing your mind and plaguing your heart and keeping you up in the middle of the night, God is here, and he is willing to take those cares upon his shoulders because he's big enough. He's strong enough. He knows your heart and what things you have need of, and he's able to sustain you. So why don't we just lift our hands? And in a quiet place, I'm not going to ask you to come to the altar if you want to. You're free to. But if you're wrestling with something, if there are some things that are, are, are causing your heart affliction and afflicting your mind, I pray that you give them to God right now. In your quiet place of prayer, just say, God, Maybe you don't even know what it is that you're wrestling with. Maybe you don't even know what is in your heart, but you know that things just aren't right. And now's the time to begin that process of giving those cares to him because he's here. And just like he knew what Elijah needed, just as he knew what David needed, and though David walked through affliction and walked through trials and tribulations, God never, never walked away from David. He always sustained him. He always gave him what he needed for the next leg of the journey. And I promise you, God will do the same to sustain you today. But you've got to take your eyes off of the problem, off of the situation, even if it's just momentary for, momentarily for a moment tonight. And you have to look to him, the author and finisher of your faith, and say, God, I don't understand, but I'm putting my hand in yours. I don't know how to navigate this anxiety, this worry, and the cares of this life, God, but I'm going to trust you. I don't know what you're doing, but I know you do all things well. I don't know what you're doing, but I know that you love me. And you're not going to leave me and you're not going to forsake me. You may not be fixing the situation right now, but I know that you can fix my heart and you can help me. You can help sustain me. You can bring healing. You can bring encouragement and bring strength.